we're going to start off today with a quick little word association game. Just real briefly, we're going to put up on screen here in just a second, we're going to put up a commonly used phrase uh, in just a moment, and we're going to fill in the blank together, okay? Everybody ready? All right. Blood is thicker than water is about the importance of family. Everybody knows that that's what it means, right? You've been hearing that, you've been using that phrase probably your whole lives to express the importance of family. But, (laughs) turns out this phrase may not mean what you think it means. Hashtag Princess Bride. Blood is thicker than water is likely a shortened form of a few different phrases throughout history that have come to mean something actually very different than what we just said. And while what I'm about to tell you is debatable because words and especially phrases and sayings, uh, they have a very complicated and and often unknown history to them. Uh, Despite all that and that this is debatable, uh, more than a few word nerds believe that the original phrase is something more like this. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Or another way that's been used throughout some some periods of history is the blood that's shed in battle is thicker than the water of the womb. Which means that if this is what it really means, (laughs) it's ironic that we colloquially, we commonly use it in everyday language to mean the exact opposite. So think of it like this. When you've made a covenant, a blood covenant, that's a concept that we get not just from the Old Testament, but from other religious, ceremonial, faith traditions in the past. When you make a blood covenant with someone, or you've fought side by side with someone in battle to the point of shedding blood, you have a very rare bond that is tighter and more enduring than having shared the water of the womb with a sibling. In other words, crisis forms and reveals who your people really are. Isn't that true? The traumas of our lives, the tragedies, the crisis we experience reveals who our people are really are. In John chapter 19, Jesus and his mother Mary were experiencing a time of crisis together. And it was a time, it was a a trauma moment for them that made clear who their people really were. And today we're going to study their experience, especially Mary's, uh, to see how we can learn how to further lean into the God-purposed relationships around us that he has put around us that are there to form us and to shape us more into the people God made us to be. In fact, they are there, those relationships, those people around us are there to form and shape us into members of God's forever family. Jump into John 19, starting at verse 25, if you would, where John starts off by telling us this. Verse 25, but standing by, meaning standing alongside the cross of Jesus were, and then he names four women, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
So there are lots of Marys going on here. In the ancient Near Eastern uh, context, there was apparently a 75% chance your name would be Mary. Um, don't write that down. That's, that's not true. But let's press pause here and let's set the scene before we move on to the text because there's a lot of context going on here uh, behind that word uh, but where he says but standing by the cross. So we're nearing the end of the crucifixion, the very end of Jesus' life and in the immediately preceding verses here in John 19, John tells us that there were four soldiers that were basically, they were gambling to see who got Jesus' robe. Because they saw it and they noticed, ooh, it's handcrafted and it's likely well-made and perhaps worth something. So they start to sort of roll dice to see who would get it. So John starts here in verse 25 by pointing out the contrast. Soldiers gambling away Jesus' clothing to, to, to profit off of it. And then it says, but standing by the cross of Jesus, meaning standing with, alongside Jesus, were four women who had very closely followed him, including his mother. So John here, John here wants us to see the sad and ironic tragedy of four soldiers missing this moment by looking to profit off of Jesus' death, contrasted with the utter grief of Jesus' followers who were close to him, and especially Mary, his, his mother, because she's, she's there watching her son die in this, this tragic way. And, and think about it. Who, who knows really, of course, what Mary is thinking? John doesn't really tell us much here, but I imagine that Mary, as she is standing there watching her own son die, she might be thinking back to an important moment 33 years ago, just 40 days after Jesus' birth, when she and Joseph took him to the temple to present him to the Lord. You see, there was this faithful and spirit-filled man named Simeon. Scripture tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the comfort of Israel, which is Jewish language for saying the Messiah, the anointed one. He was waiting for the Messiah to come. And so he would hang out at the temple day after day after day, looking for the, Lord, the Lord's anointed to come in. And while that sounds a little bit crazier, crazy, it gets even crazier because the Lord had told Simeon, he had told this man, that he was not going to die before actually seeing the Lord's anointed with his own eyes. So he hung out day after day and waited at the temple. Is this the one? <laughs> Is that the one? So when Mary and Joseph come in with baby Jesus, and, and Simeon sees him, and he knows that this is the one, Imagine Mary's wonder and surprise when Simeon held him up. And if you're not in Luke 2, you're going to want to join us there. Simeon holds up baby Jesus. And he says these amazing words in Luke 2, starting at verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph marveled they were amazed at what was said about Jesus, the baby Jesus. And then he tells us that Simeon turned to Mary and said to her, look in Luke 2, 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed Meaning Jesus' message would put him in a place of experiencing this, this heartache of continual opposition at his message, even from his own people. And then Simeon said this, again, to Mary. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So back to the cross. It's this moment of, of tragedy where Mary is standing beside the cross, having felt every chink of the metal that nailed his hands and feet as a blow to her own soul. <laughs> Turns out Simeon was a prophet. And so Mary's own baby, whom she had nursed and held and, and comforted and raised was being executed by those that he was dying to save. John 19 plus Luke 2 give us a clear picture of the grief of that moment at the cross for Mary. And yet think about what's going on there in the wider picture. Even in that moment of a sad and ironic tragedy, where at that point Jesus is barely able to breathe, let alone speak, on the cross he was still the fullness of self-sacrificial love. Jump back to, uh, to John 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother Mary and the disciple whom he loved, that's the apostle John's name for himself in the Gospel of John, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, two words, standing nearby. Now press pause here before we move on. This is important here. When John says that they were standing nearby, he isn't saying that they were standing close to Jesus, which Obviously, incidentally, they were because he's about to speak to them and they can hear him just fine. But John means by standing nearby, he means that he, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was standing nearby Mary. So if you're taking notes or you, you write in your Bible, just, just write the word her next to standing nearby or whatever your version says there. In other words, it should functionally sort of read like this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby her. So, to put a couple things together before we move on. Earlier in verse 25, as we've already looked at, John gives a picture of four women standing nearby the cross. Standing nearby alongside the cross. Supporting Jesus. But here he gives a picture of himself, John, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, standing nearby Jesus' mother. It's a picture of John's support of Jesus' mother, Mary, 
just as the four women were a picture of support for Jesus as they stood alongside the cross. It's clear here in John 19, in this picture, who Jesus' people were during his own time of crisis. So, pick it up at verse 26. Keep reading here. Then he said to his mother, when Jesus, his mother, and the disciple whom he loved, John, were standing nearby each other, when he was standing nearby her, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, this is from the cross, Behold your mother. And John concludes here by saying, verse 27, At that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now from what we know, Jesus' father, Joseph, uh, had died before now. We also know from John 7, 5, John 7, verse 5, that up to this point, up to the cross even, Jesus' own brothers had rejected him as Messiah. They would follow him later after the resurrection. And we also know that Mary is in a crisis here. Her heart being pierced by uh, the isolation of the moment, especially seen in contrast to the clueless Roman soldiers who are gambling away Jesus' clothing. And she would be here experiencing uh, pretty soon a widowhood that extended far beyond sort of needing physical care. You see, and this is the point here from our text for our purposes today that I want you to see. Apparently, Jesus did not think it fitting that non-believing DNA brothers should be given charge of his mother. It's not like there weren't siblings there to provide for her in physical ways that they had already done, given that she was a widow and Joseph was likely dead for years before this. We can only assume that Jesus' other brothers were already caring for her in those kinds of ways as Joseph had been dead for some time. So rather than leave Mary with his non-believing siblings, Jesus puts together two non-blood-related people because, meaning his mother Mary and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, because they are both part of God's forever family. And the care that Mary needed went way beyond just physical care. And we're not just making this up and putting it on the text. It comes straight from Jesus' own mouth and how John sets this, this hand up. He sets, off, uh, sets up this handoff that happens between Jesus and John. He's orchestrating it in the text based on Jesus' own words here. You see, Jesus had spoken of and he had spoken to Mary up to this point in the Gospel of John in a very particular way. And then here in verses 26 and 7, John makes an explicit change. So before we get there, some quick background. Early in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, Mary had sort of pushed Jesus uh, to do a miracle to fix the, the problem of no wine at the wedding at Cana. And as he is telling her that his time to go public with his ministry had not yet come, he calls Mary woman, which frankly was just a formal, uh, a, a, a formal way of directly addressing someone that was common in that day. And it was not as disrespectful as it might seem to us today. So in this earlier scene from John 2, as he calls Mary woman, he's distancing himself 
from her some because he is also saying, woman, my mission orders, my ministry directives, they come from God the Father because, because he is my true father. And, and frankly, they don't come from you. Which must have been a little hard for her to hear, obviously. Jesus says something similar at the end of Luke 2 when Mary and Joseph They lose Jesus. They had just been in Jerusalem with the family to celebrate the Passover, and they're going home, and on the way home, they think, oh no, we've lost the Messiah. So at the end of Luke 2, when they go back uh, to find Jesus, and they come to the temple, they see him there, he says to them, in effect, why would I be anywhere other than in my father's house doing my father's business? He's basically saying, and and by the way, parenthetically, this is the only time in history when a child has ever said this, and he's not just being smart-alecky. He's saying, you're not my real mom and dad. So, So with that background in mind, here in John 19, John is triggering us as, as readers to this change in tone. All along, Jesus had been saying things to make clear from the beginning, that his orders came from his heavenly father. He called Mary woman. But notice the change from verse 26 to 27. Look at the change here from verse 26 to 27 here in John 19. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Uh, Woman, which had been a slight distancing term for Mary, used by Jesus, became mother, a term of nurture. And John, John became the functional care for Mary. Why? Because Jesus knew he could be trusted because he was a blood brother in God's forever family who understood that nurture and care goes goes way beyond the physical stuff. Now, I don't think it's a weird stretch to say that the blood of Christ that makes people part of God's forever family is thicker than water. It may sound a bit functionally heretical to some of us if the world's definitions are more important to us than the authority of the Bible, But this is one of those places we're studying in this series where Jesus makes clear that the church, the church is true forever family. God's people are true family. Again, like we said last week, Church and biological family are not necessarily mutually exclusive. In fact, Jesus is here trying to show us that God's family supersedes biological family. It is the family of God where his sons and daughters have the DNA of Jesus in them through the Spirit of God. The the people who call him Father and who do his will, that church family is the true and forever family according to what we learn in this series. Jesus himself talked like this in a bunch of places. We studied one last week, Mark 3, 35. 
He says, who are my, mothers, my mother and my brothers? And then looking about at those around him who were sitting there, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He said in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, he says this in Matthew 10, I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set family member against family member. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He says something similar in Mark 10, 29, and 30. He says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, no one who has left those things for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Friends, what God is doing in Jesus is creating for himself a forever family that supersedes and goes beyond mere human DNA. It is only that kind of family, frankly, that can ultimately provide what we truly need. Which is to say, friends, when it matters most, when crisis hits, when the bottom drops out, when the, when the isolation of your own sin means that you fully and you finally understand the powerlessness that's required to fully and finally lean on the Jesus who alone grants you the gift of grace that you could never earn. When that is where you are and you are wondering who your people are, it is the forever family where God is Father who alone are the God-purposed people that can show you what hope looks like in ways DNA alone never can. When crisis hits and you need, you need help that food and shelter and, and, and worldly love cannot provide for you, what you really need is battle-ready brothers and sisters who understand and have lived and depend on the grace of God. So a lesson for today, friends, is, is before you're there, <laughs> before you're there in crisis, experiencing the isolation that requires family you may not have or people who aren't really yet your own, then the idea here is prepare well now. Find your people. Something we like to say around here is you're not just, you don't just stumble across amazing Christian community. That's not how this works. You don't just happen up upon it and, and stumble across it. You create it. You create it, absolutely, that's how this works. Finding your people involves leaning into those who you know are a part of the forever family around you. So if you don't yet have those people, find them. We have them here. We're crawling with people who depend day by day on the gift of the gospel of grace that alone can provide what we all need in this forever family. If you don't have them, find them. Join a life group because that's where you can prepare for crisis with battle-ready brothers and sisters who understand and who depend on grace. 
Come with us to Regen on Monday nights. That's where you'll learn how the gift of the gospel of grace is the power that alone can repair the isolation and the loneliness that you experience. When we say connect in a small group and get into a life group and come to Regen, what we're really saying is that, that, that many of you aren't yet hearing <laughs> that we have battle-ready brothers and sisters who love Jesus and who depend on grace, who are ready to help you and to be your people. If you're here today and you know who your people are, then continue to lean into those God-purposed relationships where God's will is the goal. Or how is life by yourself going? Doing well with that? Lean into the God-purposed people around you. Which means you may have to open up, be vulnerable, lead with weakness. That's how you lean into those kinds of relationships. If you continue to exude the sort of deception of, of independence, Instead of being real about your struggles and your need to lean on other people, you will miscommunicate that you don't want or you don't need others' help, and you will regret that in a time of crisis or tragedy. We preach it yet. You need to know, friends, <laughs> uh, that crisis or tragedy, like the cross, where there's an isolation and an, and an emptiness and, a, and, and where does the hope come from feeling, crisis or tragedy like the cross, it reveals whether or not we are actually a part of God's family and whether or not God's people are your own people. Some of us need to know this because we're not connected, but we know we need to be. Some of us need to know this because we think we're connected, but we're not. God has put us together through what only God can do, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit to give Jesus to us here uh, so that we can be uh, our own people for one another. Let's pray, friends. Lord God, for all of us, there is so much yet to learn. We ask, Father, that uh, you would continue to humble us uh, so that we would, we would learn to lean into the people you have around us who know grace well, who have been through crisis, who understand what it means to, to work through the isolation that uh, our own sin and the sin of others puts us in. Father, teach us to find our people, to look for them, to give ourselves to those relationships, uh, to, to vulnerably lead so that we can have those kinds of relationships in our lives. We ask, Father, that you would uh, give us the strength and courage to jump in where we know we need so that we can over time develop the kind of uh, community that happens in your family. And Father, help us, uh, those of us who call you Father, 
to continue to give ourselves to uh, this project of building a community of people uh, so that we would care for one another well, so that we would create environments where growth is the norm, where uh, people who need to know you and have forever relationship with you, who don't call you Father, would look at those relationships we have and say, that, that's what I desperately need. Father, make of us witnesses to the truth of your grace in our lives. Uh, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.